Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Oh, how nice. Thank you. Good morning to our friends at home as well, and I know some guys are out there in the fellowship hall and in the RHM room. Wherever you may be in this moment in time, good morning. Turn with me, please, class, uh, or friends. I used to be a school teacher. Sorry, that one snuck out. Turn with me, please, to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 3, which is where we are picking up this morning. The book of Acts, chapter 3. Let me pray for our time. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And... Uh, the privilege to be able to gather and, and sit under it. Let me thank you for uh, the way it has been preserved through the millennia um, for this moment in time. And Lord, we do pray that you would speak to our hearts. Father, we pray that our hearts would be open to receive. Uh, more often than not, Lord, uh, there's a hindrance. And so, Lord, we just lay all those things, whether they be sin or cares or things that are just troubling us, distractions, all those different things we put aside so that we can hear from you. And Lord, we pray that you would bless a familiar passage, maybe one that uh, we've read a number of different times, Lord. We ask that this morning you would bless it once more, proving once again that your word is alive and that it's able to cut through into the deep places of our hearts, the place that, where we really need to hear from you. So minister to us, we ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're picking up in, in chapter 3, and we're going to pick up today in verse 12, where we left off. The last time we were together, looking at uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, we were introduced uh, in the beginning of the study to a closing verse of chapter 2. All right, so we're going to be in chapter 3, but I, I would like you to take a gander over at chapter 2, verse 43, and there we read these words. Uh, and again, remember, chapter 1 and 2 are sort of leading up to uh, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, his being poured out upon his, the church, his children. Uh, and then Peter, or excuse me, Luke kind of summarizes what the rest of the book is going to be about in the last few verses of chapter 2. And there, in verse 43, Luke wrote, And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. And as we make our way through the rest of the book, we're going to see so many different examples of that. As we came to chapter 3, we saw the first example of that, a sign and a wonder that was accomplished or done through the apostles, particularly Peter and John. As we learned last time we were together, Peter and John, they made their way to the temple, just as they always did. In the afternoon, they had the, uh, the, the late day afternoon prayers Three in the afternoon, we know it to be the ninth hour. They made their way there uh, to pray, as was their custom. And in the process of doing so, the Holy Spirit ministered to Peter's heart in such a way that Peter had a sense, this is going to be different today. As he's walking in, there's a man who's always there, reaching out his hand, saying, hey, could you, uh, could you spare some change here? The Bible tells us that he was a lame man from birth. He was unable to walk, thus unable to work, all those types of things that would be associated with that. And so he would go to the temple, and there he would beg. And, you know, the people in generosity, and it was, you know, a mark of even their religiosity to give a little bit to this fella. And so that was the goal. That was the intent. That's what the man wanted that particular day. But God wanted something different for that man. And on that particular day, he moved on the heart of Peter, and Peter stopped, and he looked at the man, and he asked the man to look at him. He said, look at us, referring to he and John. 
And he says, I don't have silver and gold to give you. I don't have any change to give you. But what I do have, I do give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And he reached out his man. The man reached back his hand. Together he lifted the man up. And the man was immediately healed, the apostle Peter tells us. Or to me, Luke tells us. I keep mixing that up. I apologize. And so Peter and the man and John, they go into the temple where they're going to worship. That was the whole goal for Peter and John to begin with. They're going to worship. They're going to pray. And now people are taking notice because here's the guy that had been at the temple gate for years. Let's just say it was his adult life. For the last 20, 25 years, this man was at that temple begging that he might receive some spare change. And now he's there in the temple. And the people are like, that's the fella. That's the guy. Now look at him, though. He's standing. He's leaping. He's praising. The word leaping there, again, I'll remind you from last time we were together, it's a word we might use if uh, somebody drilling for oil strikes oil and the water comes gushing forth. This man is leaping in this particular way. Everyone was taking notice of it. Everyone was being drawn to it. And that brings us to where we left off in verse 12. And I'll begin reading there. Peter sees this as an opportunity to advance the gospel on a much lesser scale. My wife and I, when we were 23 years old, about five years ago, we went over to, we were over in Russia, we were in uh, Siberia, and, and Siberia, you know, you think it's like, oh, it must just be snow all the time. Well, in the summer, Siberia is quite nice. Uh, and we were there in the summer, and we were in this little town, it was a town of Omsk, is what they call it. Anybody been to Omsk? I didn't think so. Um, well, my wife and I have. And uh, we went out into town center, we came into town, went out into town center, and people began rushing out to us because the Americans, you hear the Americans have arrived by train. I can't imagine a lot of Americans are passing by Omsk very often. And they came out to see us and they were particularly interested in our blue jeans. They wanted to know about our blue jeans as well. So they wanted to know about the Americans that were in town and they wanted to know about the blue jeans that they were wearing. And we saw this, our group, there were about 20 of us, 25 of us, as an opportunity to advance the gospel. So we were happy to talk to them about what America's like. We were happy to talk to them about our blue jeans or whatever, as long as it turned the corner and we could use it to advance the gospel. That's why we traveled all of that way. And Peter here, on a much grander scale than my silly story, Peter here sees it as an opportunity. The masses are coming. Great crowds were coming. What has happened here? And Peter says this, verse 12, when Peter saw the crowd, he addressed the people and he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and instead you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man uh, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, last week, you may remember, if you have a good memory, in, just in passing, I made this statement uh, the last time we were together that this story of this particular man being healed is a perfect story for Luke to kind of begin telling the story of the book of Acts because of all that it communicates here and how it communicates the gospel going forth. 
And I emphasize that that's what Peter, that's what Luke, that's what the apostles were all interested in, the story of the gospel going forth. Not that miracles went forth, but that the gospel went forth. And as we'll see in our story, and as I just pointed to in the little bit that I've read here, you have this amazing miracle. A man, lame from his, from his birth, immediately healed and made strong, able to get up, leap, go into the temple and praise the Lord. And Peter doesn't see it as an opportunity to magnify the miracle. He sees it as an opportunity to magnify Jesus Christ, to magnify the gospel. That was the disciples' goal, was that the gospel would go forth. Not the miracles, but that the gospel. And signs and wonders, and we'll see this throughout our study of the book of Acts, signs and wonders oftentimes accompanied the ministry of the apostles, but it was never the goal or the focus of the ministry of the apostles. Jesus was, and the gospel was. And so standing there, Peter sees this crowd that is before him, and he interprets it as, this is a great opportunity. Look at all the people that are gathered here. And so he says in verse 12, men of Israel, remember he's in the temple courts, Jewish people that are gathered here before him, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, at my friend here that's been healed? Why do you stare at us, John and I, as though by our own power or piety we have made him well? Now, a few weeks back, we looked at chapter 2, and there, the, the sermon that Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost. This now is the second recorded sermon for us that Peter extemporaneously delivers to an audience that is gathered around him. And the sermons are a little bit different. If you go and read the one in chapter 2, it's a little bit different. He uses different passages and so on from the one here now in chapter 3. But even though the sermons are a little bit different, the theme in both sermons is the same. The central theme, the central focus point of both sermons is Jesus Christ. That's what he's preaching about to these people, even though he's using different Bible passages to make his case. Now imagine today if someone's coming into church and there's a guy outside and he's healed. Imagine today what that might have descended into. And maybe descended is the wrong word. It has a negative connotation. What it might have moved into. More than likely, in our day, it would have moved into a situation where Peter would say, we're going to bring up Bob, the, the former lame man. We're going to bring him here so that Bob can give testimony of what God did in his life. And Bob would come up. And Bob would explain, well, I was born and it was a difficult childhood. And he would go on for 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes about his entire life experience to this particular day. Bob would give testimony. Now, that's nice. That's wonderful. It's an encouraging story. But it's not what Peter's listeners needed. And quite frankly, it's not what our world needs either. We don't need to hear interesting stories about this happening and that happening and so on. What we really need to hear is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ glorified. And that's what Peter is going to do. And so rather than seeing this as an opportunity for testimony time, he sees it as an opportunity to teach the people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and accomplished. That's what his audience is going to need. Peter knew the phenomena of the miraculous in and of itself would save nobody. So this man is healed. He's not necessarily saved. The people listening are impressed. They're not necessarily saved. 
They need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as each one of us need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the passage says they were filled with wonder and amazement and were utterly astounded. But Paul would teach us in the book of Romans that saving faith does not come by seeing or hearing miracles, but instead he says faith comes from, from hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what the people needed to hear. And so Peter then, he begins, and he draws attention to a couple of things that he notices with the crowd that is before him. Both of these are found in verse 12. The first is that they were marveling that a miracle was done. He takes note of that, and he makes mention of it, and he's going to address it as we move on. And then the second thing is he takes notice that the audience, the crowd, is looking at him and Peter, or excuse me, him and John, as if somehow they were the ones that accomplished this. And so we'll say there, it wasn't by our power and it wasn't by our piety that this man is able to stand here before you. Let's look at those two. The first one, again, is why do you wonder at this? Now, the question points to two realities. Number one is that Jesus healed many of people, many people that were in this particular uh, predicament. And in some cases, even worse predicaments, dead people, Jesus healed. And so Jesus had performed these miracles before. And so why are they wondering at this? Well, maybe they didn't know Jesus. All right, let's, let's just give you that. They didn't know Jesus. They certainly, as men of Israel, knew the God of the Old Testament. They certainly saw the way that their Jehovah, that God, worked in the, in the past. And he was a God of miracles. And so why should it surprise them that the miracles continue to go forth? He says, why do you marvel at these things? And then again, the second thing he says is, and why are you staring at us like we had something to do with it? Now imagine if you were in that circumstance. You were Peter. You were John. The temptation must have been, or might have been, let's say it that way, might have been great for many of us to take the accolades. The temptation might have been for many of us to sort of stand there and say, this man is healed because we prayed, and we have special access to God, and so anybody else will come. Matter of fact, tomorrow morning we're going to start our new LLC. It'll be a 501c3, Peter and John Healing Ministries, You set up an appointment and come down, and for a donation, we'll take care of you. How easily they could have moved in that direction. The reason I say that is because how many people move in that direction these days? Whether they're real or they're fake, the Lord knows. Nonetheless, they draw attention to themselves so frequently. So I think we could look at Peter and say, you know what? He could have been in a very vulnerable place here because a great thing had been done through him as a conduit, a pipe through which something flows, and he could have easily stepped up to begin to take credit for these things. But instead, wisely and humbly, what does he do? He points to Jesus. We had nothing to do with this, John and I, our power, our piety. This is what the Lord has done. So he says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And then he turns his attention on them. He says, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
Now, what Peter does is he begins with the God they know. We looked at how he did this in the, the second chapter um, sermon as well, the, the Pentecost sermon. He began with something they know, a common starting point where they could say, all right, we're on common ground here. And then he went from there. He began with the God they knew, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he explains how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified, lifted up, magnified Jesus. And then he points out whom they delivered over to be killed. And so Peter makes it clear from the beginning that he's speaking to them, not about some new God. He's speaking to them about the God that they have known all their lives, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from there, he transitions to Jesus. And you'll notice he refers to him, he calls him uh, the servant of God or uh, God's servant, Jesus, he says there. So he transitions to this idea of servant. Now that title, that servant, he calls him servant Jesus, that title was a well-known messianic title in the Old Testament. It comes from the familiar passage of Isaiah chapter 53, which we use the phrase the suffering servant. And so the Jews knew that that reference to the servant in the Old Testament scriptures was a reference to the Messiah. And so what does Peter do right in the beginning? He's naming Jesus as the Messiah. If you look at verse 14, he goes on from there and he refers to Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One. Now that was a title in the Old Testament reserved for Jehovah and Jehovah only. And so what Peter has done is not by accident, he's used two different titles to describe Jesus. One is a messianic title, and the other is the title for deity. And so what he is saying here as he begins his sermon, really, just getting started, what he is saying here is using these commonly applied Jewish scriptures to refer to Jesus as the Messiah and Jehovah God. He's essentially saying he's God in the flesh. Come to the earth to accomplish his purposes. He goes on from there. And he calls out his listeners. Verse 13, he says, this Jesus, this incarnate Christ, whom you delivered over and denied, whom you rejected in the presence of Pilate. You remember the story, Pilate, sort of the governor there of Jerusalem, had every intention to let Jesus go. He saw through. He saw that this was just some Jewish leaders that were trying to get rid of a problem, that were jealous of a problem, all that kind of stuff. He even was willing, look, I'll beat him for you. I'll, whip, I'll have him whipped or whatever. I'll help, t I'll help you guys teach him a lesson or whatever. But I don't see anything worthy of death here. And you remember those religious leaders, if you do not put him to death, then you're not a friend of Caesar's. And Pilate's like, how did I get in the middle of this? And so he thinks, I'll just wash my hands of it. But every one of us that have learned the Apostles' Creed, we all know his name. Crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, died, and was buried. Right? We all know it. He couldn't wash his hands of it. But the Jews there insisted, even when Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, those Jewish leaders there insisted. Peter says, you men did this. You crucified the incarnate Christ. Peter will say in verse 14 that they denied the holy and righteous one. He'll say uh, also in verse 14 that they asked for a murderer. Of course, we know his name to be Barabbas. We'd rather have a murderer than gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We want him killed. He says in verse 15 that they killed the author of life. 
So Peter very clearly puts the responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ on these folks that are listening to him. Again, you delivered him up. You denied the holy righteous and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted instead. You killed the author of life. He's not beating any bushes, is he? Now remember where he's saying this. In the temple courts. No doubt, as all the, the commotion was stirring, no doubt some of the chief priests, some of the religious leaders made their way over. What's going on here? We'll decide who's happy and who's not happy here. And so they make their way over there. No doubt some of the very people that put Jesus to death are standing there. And I wonder if Peter, as he's making his way and he's making eye contact, and when he comes across phrases like, whom you killed, he's looking directly into the eyes of some of those chief priests. Whom you delivered over to death and denied. Right into their eyes. This could have been a, a bad situation for Peter as he's calling them out for their sin. He says, you killed them. You killed the Messiah sent from heaven. Now notice, even though they rejected the Messiah, they killed the Messiah, and he was dead, God determined he would not remain dead. Look at uh, what verse 15 goes on to say. Uh, whom God raised from the dead, he says, and to this we are all witnesses. He whom they had put to death, God had raised back to life. And as we already saw in other studies in, in Acts, many people were witnesses of that resurrection. And so Peter now, again, and I, I draw an emphasis to this, as we want to share our story, the gospel, with other people, we see the emphasis on the cross of Christ, what drove Christ to the cross is our sin. We see that emphasized. But we also see an emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the importance of it to our faith. Our faith is meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the reality. That's what Scripture says. Otherwise, we'd be uh, kind of looking back fondly on a good man. But it's all different because the grave is empty. The importance of the, the resurrection. The message of the cross is powerless without the resurrection, because the resurrection is proof that our victory was won on the cross. That's how we can know that our sins are forgiven. Otherwise, well, I, Jesus said it, but I mean, he's dead. How do I know? The disciples were not following a dead Savior. They were following a living Savior. Continues to be active Savior. And as an example of that, there's a lame man now standing beside me, jumping up and down in excitement for what God had done for him. So Peter says in verse 16, And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter and John, again, were not the author of the miracle. The author of the miracle was Jesus Christ. As I, I said earlier, power flowed not from them, but through them. God was the one who did the miracle here. The Lord was the one that did this miraculous thing. And I'll make one final point. Notice Peter says, and his name by faith in this name. The man in and of himself didn't exercise any faith, didn't really even have an opportunity to exercise any faith. You remember the man asked for change. 
he asked for some alms from these religious people. He didn't ask to be healed. The faith that was exercised to heal this man was on the part of Peter and John. They were the ones that God's Holy Spirit was working in to cause Peter to say, you know what, I don't have any money to give you, but I can give you something even better. I can get, uh, raise you up to life that you might walk. God had gifted him with, as the phrase we used last time, the gift of faith. Now, here's the reason why I bring it up, because sadly, there's a doctrine that goes around the Christian church, practice, doctrine, all those types of things, that says if a person is not healed, then the, pers the reason is, is because the person lacked enough faith to be healed. And so you'll go to some service somewhere, and the, the person, the preacher, whomever, will get up, and will say, we're going to have a healing service here. Who wants to be healed? And everyone's excited. I do. You know, and then they come forth, and a person's not healed. And then the preacher will turn it back on the person. Well, brother, sister, if you just had more faith, you could be healed. In this instance, the man didn't show any faith at all. The faith was on the part of Peter and John. And so we could say, back to that preacher in our days that says, if you just had a little more faith, we could say back to that person, well, perhaps if you had a little more faith, then I could be healed. And so don't believe that lie. Don't let someone tell you that lie. Don't let someone discourage you and your faith. Jesus said in another place, if we had faith as a mustard seed, we can move mountains. And so it's not the amount of our faith. It's who we have faith in. Jesus Christ. And Peter and John, they exercised their faith in Christ. This man was healed. So notice what Peter has done. This is what's going on. Why are you surprised at these things? He puts the blame on them. You crucified Christ, but God raised him up, and it's through that raised up Christ that this man is healed. You would almost expect now Peter to say something like, now all of you, get out of my face. God doesn't even want you in his presence, you wicked individuals. But the sermon takes a very interesting turn, and it's a sweet turn. It's a turn that every one of us that knows Jesus Christ has experienced in our own lives. Because here's the process of what it means to come to Jesus Christ. It means to come into his presence. Maybe you're at a church service. Maybe you're at some rally. Maybe you're sitting alone with a Bible somewhere. But it's to come into his presence, and he begins to convict you of sin. And he begins to convict you of your unworthiness. And the expectation would be, I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God. He's going to throw me out of here. But instead, he invites you in. And he ministers his grace and his mercy to you. And that's what happens here in this sermon. It changes this direction. He says in verse 17, and now, brothers. Some of your versions say, yet now, brothers. You're as guilty as sin, of sin, Yet now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, he says in verse 17, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
He says in verse 24, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So rather than calling down lightning bolts because they were guilty of sin, instead Peter says, yet brothers. So first he calls them brothers, which is certainly um, a magnanimous extension here to people that are guilty. The next is he says, I know that you acted in ignorance. So notice Peter's heart as he's preaching to them. These people were not Peter's enemies. These were people that had been deceived, so deceived that they would murder the Messiah. Peter's not angry at them. He's broken for them. He doesn't hate these people. Neither did Christ hate these people. Peter knows what it is to deny Christ. You remember he did that on three different occasions? And Peter also knows what it is to experience the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that's what he is lovingly, caringly, honestly presenting to his listeners. There's a change of tone in verse 17. Now, again, very clearly, however, you sinned. And judgment, you're worthy of judgment. But he also extends to them the mercy of God. He says, brothers, I know you did this in ignorance. Again, he knows what it is to deny Christ, but he also knows what it is to receive the mercy of God. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, verse 18, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter declares that even this rejection of Christ on the part of his listeners, God even used that to accomplish his purposes. So despite their great wickedness, this doesn't change God's plan. It doesn't derail God's plan. Because we know that God can take the most horrible evil and use it to accomplish good. And that's what he's going to do, and that's what he has done here. I'm reminded of the Old Testament story of Joseph, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And some of you know that Joseph had a, a rather difficult life. Joseph was the youngest son at the time. Um, he would Eventually, another brother would be born younger than him. But at the time, he was the youngest son. He had a terrible relationship with his older brothers, this whole step family kind of thing that was going on there. And finally, his older brothers decide they're going to beat him and ultimately leave him for dead. And then one comes along and says, well, he's our brother. How about we sell him into slavery? At least we can make some money off of it. And, you know, we're not killing our brother. And so they do that. They sell him into slavery. And he goes there into slavery. And he begins to deal with this new life circumstance that he's going to be dealing with. And he kind of puts his best foot forward. And he rises. He advances among even the slaves. He becomes sort of like a, a top slave. And, and all is going well for him. Until somebody accuses him of rape which he didn't do. It was just sort of turned against him to, to be used against him, and then he's imprisoned. And what a crummy life. This, every, every turn is awful here. Well, he makes the best of prison. 
and he rises some out of the top of the prisoners or whatever, and he's respected by the guards and all this kind of stuff. People know his name. And he has the opportunity to help out the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt at that particular time. And he, he seizes on the opportunity, says, sure, I'll help, whatever I need to do. And he's rewarded in that way as well. But I mean, this guy, his life, one turn after the other, was difficult for this guy. And when all was said and done, at the end of his life, he says to his brothers who he, he encounters, you should read the passage, it's like Genesis 35 to Genesis 50 in that range there. But when all said and done, he says to his brothers who are apologizing, he says, look, as for you, I know you meant this for evil, but God meant these things for good, to save his people and to accomplish his good work. What an amazing perspective on his life, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have that perspective on life? That even when things are crummy for you, if it accomplishes something good for God, then you're okay with it. And that's what he says. And that's what God did with the wickedness of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They killed the Messiah. But God brought about good, even from what they meant to be evil. Peter says to them, you did this horrible act, but God worked through it to accomplish his eternal purposes. And so then he says to his listeners, he says, repent, therefore, verse 19, he says that, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter's desire for his listeners was not simply to condemn his listeners, because if it was, he would have stopped at verse 16. The sermon is over. You all know what louses you are. Now get out of here and think about it or await the coming judgment. That wasn't Peter's desire. His desire is that the people would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus. There's a lot of Christians, preachers suffer from this, but a lot of Christians in general like to preach condemnation. Oh, that was a great sermon. I really gave it to him today. Not a single person felt good about you know, the message today. Everyone left here feeling awful. It seems like people love that, enjoy that, pursue that. I hope I take a different bent, and I think Peter did. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. I'm going to paraphrase him a bit. But he said this, never preach to someone about hell unless there are tears in your eyes. Because we don't desire anybody to go to hell. Like Jesus, our desire is that all would come to faith and be saved. And that's what Peter's desire is. So Peter says, repent and turn. Remember, to repent is to change your mind. The idea of turning is to change your direction. We could say it this way. Peter said, look, you previously looked at Jesus as one who was worthy of death. Peter says, change your mind concerning him and rather see that he is actually the prince of life. He says, change your mind regarding who Jesus is and turn from your rejection of him and instead embrace him. That's what repentance is. It's a changing of our mind toward an issue and then moving in a new direction. And so sorrow oftentimes is connected with repentance, but in and of itself it is not repentance. Repentance is feeling sorry enough to change. And change means turning from our sin, whatever that sin might be. 
It means turning from it toward Christ. Again, the idea of repent, we, we associate it with the guy with the sandwich board going up and down the street. We associate it with the pastor that is saying, repent, ye sinners, and screaming at people. But repent is a word of hope. Because repent communicates the hope that if you do, you can experience the mercy of God. If you do repent and return and change your heart and your direction, the Lord will receive you. That's a hopeful word. It's a hopeful statement that there is even a possibility of returning extended to them. And so Peter then, he is going to go on, he's going to conclude his sermon he declares that if they do repent, the Lord's going to receive them. And four things are going to come about. Real quickly, we can see these in the conclusion of the passage here. The first one, he says, repent that your sins might be blotted out. That the record of your wrongs would be erased. It, it's very so in, in the ancient times, and I don't know when this changed, probably somewhere in like the 1800s. But in the ancient days, they had ink, but and I don't know enough scientifically about it, I'll just tell you what I've read. Ink has sort of an acid base to it, and that acid base, just a little bit of it, bites into the paper, and so it remains there. In the old days, it didn't have that. And so it was very similar, the difference between when you write on a dry erase board, and you, if you write with a permanent marker, it stays there, it has an acid base. If you write with a, an erasable marker, you can wipe it back off and it's gone. Well, that was the ink that they used back in that day. And so when it talks about this idea of being blotted out, some modern versions will use the word wiped away. So you could write something out on a piece of paper and take a damp cloth and wipe it right off. And what was written out on that piece of paper was their sins, their transgressions. But because of the work of Jesus Christ and their faith in his work, it would be wiped away. It would be blotted away. You would look at the paper and there'd be nothing on it any longer. Nothing for them for which they can be judged. And so that's the first thing that he says there. Um, Repent and return that your sins might be blotted out. The second thing that we see here, he says that times of refreshing may come. So the first one deals with their past. That all your sins might be blotted out, wiped away, clean. This next one deals with your future, essentially. And it says that times of refreshing may come. There is a peace and a freedom that comes when the burden of our sin has been removed. Amen? Amen. And I, I'm sure, yeah, I know. I know that. Even not just when I first came to know Jesus, but subsequently, many years after, when there was an area of sin in my life, and I finally said, you know what, Lord, you're right. Remember, when, when we confess our sin, the Bible says really what we're doing is acknowledging our sin. He's already revealed it to us. And we finally say to him, you're absolutely right, Lord. I can't believe I did it. It was wrong. What's the matter with me? Would you forgive me? Would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? And there is a burden that releases from us when we do it. There's this time of refreshing. The weight is lifted. You remember in the Old Testament, you have the story of David and Bathsheba. David, the king of Israel, his neighbor, it was actually this military family. One of his commanders lived a couple of houses down from the palace. The commander is off at war. David was supposed to be off at war, but he wasn't. And he was there in his palace. And it says one day he goes and he takes a walk on his roof. They had flat patio type roofs. Takes a walk on his roof, notices this particular woman, who 
though I can't help but think probably bathed at certain times of the day. And so he strolls out, oh, look at that. But he knew what he was going to see. He ends up having an affair with this particular woman. The Bible, you can do the math, the Bible reveals that for over a year, or close to a year, I should say, David hid this sin. David tried to cover it up. He tried to scheme some ways that he could get away with it. Nobody would know that he was involved. He eventually had the husband of this woman murdered because now she would be available. He could take her in as his wife. And everyone could cheer. What a good man David is. Look how much he cares, even for his commanders, that he would take in this widow and care for her. But we know the reality. We're reading the story. David was in sin. And he was hiding his sin. Finally, one day, again, about a year later, a prophet, a man by the name of Nathan, comes to the palace. David knew who he was. Comes to the palace, and he presents sort of this scenario, this story to David about these lambs that were in the field and a traveler that came in, and rather than the many lambs that were available, he went into the house and he took the pet lamb out of that house, like our pet dogs and cats. He stole that from a neighbor who had no other animals so he wouldn't have to give up one of his own. And David's like, that's ridiculous. That's awful. That man, man, they should should really give it to that guy. And Nathan looks him in the eye, standing there on the porch of the palace, and he says, you're the man. This is what you've done. And David, the scripture says, well, it doesn't say this exactly. It demonstrates David just broke. He couldn't go anywhere anymore. He couldn't hide his sin any longer. He had to acknowledge what he had been wrestling with for close to a year. And David confessed his sin. And it's recorded for us in Psalm chapter 32. Prior to confessing his sin, this is what David said of that experience. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Speaking to God, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I know that feeling. I've been that place where I was reluctant to confess my sin for a period of time. David says, My my bones groaned, they ached within me. There was a burden that was put on me that I could feel. But notice also what David says after he confessed his sin. This is what David said. Oh, how happy, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. He says, oh, how happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not account account against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. He describes the time of refreshing that Peter's talking about. He describes the burden being lifted and his sin being removed from upon him. And we know from New Testament perspective, put on another, put on Jesus Christ. Peter, in this sermon, he says, repent and turn that your sins might be blotted out and you might experience a time of refreshing, the peace of having nothing between you and God. I want to encourage you, if you have a burden of sin that you're carrying around today, there's no reason why you need to keep carrying that any longer. You can come to Jesus Christ for the first time or the 1,001st time, and you can leave it there at the cross. Because all of our sins were crucified with Christ 
on the cross. Don't carry it any longer. Agree with him that what he's been laying on your heart, you're right, God, it is wrong. I give it over to you. I confess it as sin. That times of refreshing may come upon you. Now, Peter might also be speaking about something else. I suspect he's speaking about both of these things. Because we know the phrase, times of refreshing, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see it in Joel chapter 2, we see it in Zechariah chapter 12. The phrase times of refreshing refers to the millennium that we've been talking about in some of our previous studies. Again, remember the millennium is that 1,000 year period of time in which Jesus Christ will rule over the earth in righteousness. That millennium in the Old Testament is referred to as a time of refreshing. And so Peter, I think, no doubt speaking of the burden of sin being taken off of the individual, but he's also speaking of a time for these men of Israel when Jesus Christ will rule and reign over them. What's the precursor to that? Receiving Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And we know the scripture says that they will do so. Romans chapter 9 uh, through chapter 11 speaks of that. Peter essentially offers them the opportunity right here, right now, men of Israel receive Jesus Christ that his glorious reign may start on this particular day. Now, of course, we know that that didn't occur. The majority of the people that were there, the majority of the leaders in particular, the, the nation of Israel nationally rejected Christ. Even today rejects Christ. But had they received him in that particular instance, and of course it's hypothetical, it seems like Peter is indicating Christ will come back right now and set up his glorious reign. It also seems Peter anticipated that wouldn't occur. Look at verse 21 with, the cons or with, the, uh, with Jesus as the subject here. He says, whom heaven must receive until the time, for a period of time, until the time for rest the restoring of all things about which God spoke through his prophets. And so it, it, it seems Peter is fully aware that nationally they're not going to receive, or perhaps the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter, that there, it would still go forward. They would continue to reject. Again, Peter will go and he'll try and make this point. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the prophet that Moses spoke of. Deuteronomy 18, he says, this is in verse 22 of the Acts passage, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So that's the Old Testament, the prophet. And there was, there was some misunderstanding in the Old Testament. Is that, is that the Messiah? Is that someone else? Is it a great prophet or whatever? You remember when they came to John the Baptist and John was calling people out for their sin, repent, you brood of vipers, and you know, all these ideas. And so the religious leaders had to go out there, because no one's allowed to preach unless we tell them they're allowed to preach. And you know, who are you? Where do you come from? By what authority? Or whatever. And, they, and John said, look, I'm not the Christ. Just so everybody knows, I'm not the Christ. And so then they follow up, and they say, well, are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I already told you, I'm not the Christ. Here. But you can see in their thinking, there was this distinction between who the Messiah is, who this, the prophet is. Peter makes it clear that they're one and the same because he has already called Jesus the Messiah. And now he's saying Moses spoke of him when he used the phrase that he would raise up a prophet. I'm talking about the same person here. And so he says, Moses says, that is, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The verse continues, verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. So Peter puts it before his listeners. Here's what's before you. You can either receive Christ or you can reject Christ. You can receive Christ and the blessing that comes with having done so, or you can reject Christ and the consequences that will come from having done that. So this is the third blessing that I pointed out. Again, the first one is that their sins will be blotted out. The second one would be this time of refreshing. The third one is going forward into their eternity. They can be spared from the coming judgment. I said earlier, the central theme of this sermon is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, Peter points out, continually points to Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 24. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, these things, this Messiah and what he was going to do. He goes on in 25. He says, you are the sons of the prophets, the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those were words spoken of the Messiah, that all the, the peoples of the earth would be blessed. This is Peter's grand finale. He's bringing it all to a close. Some of you are thinking, oh, please, I hope you will as well. I'm, I'm, I'm right about there. All right, but Peter's grand finale here, he says, all the promises of the millennial blessing center in the offspring of Abraham, or as other versions say, the seed, singular, of Abraham. That is the Messiah. So to say it a different way, all the promises of the millennial blessing center in the Messiah. So you can either receive him and those blessings or you can reject him, and thus the consequences of having done so. Obviously, his appeal to them is that they would receive the Messiah. But notice also, this isn't just to the men of Israel that are standing there, because notice what he says, all the families of the earth. And so this refers to the Jewish people, the men of Israel that were listening to him, and as will become very clear as we get a little later in the book of Acts, it will refer to all the Gentile people, that are scattered throughout the world. In God's economy, there's essentially two races. There's the Jewish people, there's the Gentile people. Peter says, and he's quoting Moses there, all the families of the earth. This is good news for all people. But first, as we're seeing here, the Jews. And so as I bring my time to a close this morning, notice, please, the heart of God in this message. And so notice how in verse 28 he speaks here of his desire to bless these people. And again, remember who these people are. They're the people that killed the Messiah. Imagine if you had a son or a daughter, and a group of people came, took your son or daughter, and killed your son or daughter. Would it be your inclination to gather those people together so that you might be able to bless them? Notice the heart of God. Not at all. None of us. We don't have to answer it. But notice the heart of God. That's his desire. He wants good for every one of us. He wants to bless us. And part of that blessing process is to take us from the domain of wickedness, to turn us from that wickedness to the place of righteousness. 
And he, he brings it about essentially with that conclusion. Turn from your wicked ways, he says, that the Lord might pour forth his blessing. So chapter 3 began with a lame man looking for some change so that he could help make his present circumstances a little bit better. But as we saw, the Lord wanted something more for him. He wanted something greater for him. And Peter's sermon began essentially with the same way. The Jewish people, we know, were looking for a mere earthly king. That's the Messiah that they expected. A mere earthly king that would overthrow the Romans, get them out, and the oppression of the Romans, and then they could rule over themselves. But God wanted something more for them. Even as Peter wanted something more for the lame man. God wanted something greater for them. They longed for autonomy from a foreign oppressor. The Lord wanted to pour out upon them times of refreshing and a restoration of all things. And that's what God would have for each one of us here, that you might be refreshed. I know some of us here, we're tired. We're tired of this world that we're living in. We're tired of the divide that is within our nation. We're tired of our sin. We're tired of our response to sin that we see around us and the drain that it puts upon us. We're tired of our flesh, which seems to make its way out in our lives, even when we don't want it to make its way out into our lives. We're tired of death. We're tired of sickness. We're tired of disease. We're just tired. May I encourage you, the Lord wants to refresh each one of us. He wants us walking out of here with a greater sense of the hope that is in Jesus Christ, that the burden of sin and our sin would be removed from each one of us and we might go forward in hope. That's what God desires for us. And I encourage you, seek the Lord for it. As we bring our time to a close this morning and we're going to worship and all that sort of stuff with a final song or two, but use that as a time just to commune with your Father in heaven. Confess any sin that you've been dealing with that has been separating you. Lay all of the burdens that you may have just lay them down here on the floor in a metaphorical sense. Just lay them here and leave them here. Don't bring them with you when you go from here. My prayer is that each one of us would be refreshed as we leave. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are um, humbled by the mercy we see extended from the hand of Peter. And ultimately, we know, Lord, that it's the hand of God that's extending that mercy. And Lord, it's not presumptuous of us to seek you for your mercy. And so, Lord, in Christ Jesus, every one of us here this morning, we want to come before you and we want to just ask we have not because we ask not. We just want to ask. Lord, would you pour out a time of refreshing on each one of us? Would you remove the burden? Would you remove the sin? Would you remove the alienation? Would you even remove the prevalence of our flesh in these lives that we live? And would you fill us afresh once more with your Holy Spirit, your indwelling Holy Spirit? Father, we pray for those that might be with us today that have not even begun a relationship with God through Christ. Lord, would you work in their hearts? 
And like David, bring them to the end of themselves. Lord, bring them to the place where they say, you know what, God, you're right. I failed before a holy God. My sin separates me. Wash me, forgive me. Take it all away. Do that work, we ask, Lord, in your name. Amen.